Welcome to Foothills Christian Church. If you are visiting here on campus for the first time, we are glad you are here. If you also are watching for the first time, we are glad you're here. If you're watching from Washington or Oregon or California, you might be watching from Nigeria or Luxembourg because you're thinking of moving to Boise, which a lot of people are thinking that nowadays. We want to know you're welcome, okay? We are glad you're here. Now, our, our existence as a church is a little different than a lot of churches. Uh, we want to help you navigate life by giving you tools, knowledge, and skills to make decisions, right, that kind of determine we do your, the course of your life. We do that by connecting you to Christ first. We want you to know him, be made alive by him, redeemed by him. We want you to connect to his family, and then you want, we want you to connect to your mission in life. We kind of have a little slogan here, fluff is not enough. We want people to be able to know what they believe and why they believe it. One of the things we're doing this entire summer is we're going to go through all the parables of Jesus. And so I was kind of thinking just recently about value. You know, I was thinking about how we ascribe things value. It's like, well, what is valuable to you and what is valuable to me? And so it got me thinking about value and how do you know what's valuable and what's not valuable? Because sometimes you have these really incredible finds. I have an illustration for that. That is, there is this gal, she was out at a garage sale, okay? And she came across this table and she's looking at this table and she goes, oh, that's kind of, they went 30 bucks for it. She talked them down to 20 she took it home and she cleaned it up and she goes, you know, it's kind of interesting, this little design on it. She goes, I'm kind of curious what it's worth. So she takes it to an appraiser. The appraiser says, well, this is worth a lot more than you want. It's called a Seymour table. It was a famous Seymour Brothers made super high-end furniture for extremely wealthy people in the late 1800s. And he go, she goes, really? So she took it to Sotheby's to auction, and uh, somebody bought it, winning bid, $541,000 for a $25 table she found at a garage sale, right? Now, here, here's another one that I thought was really interesting about value. This guy grew up with this blanket sitting on the end of his bed. You know, his it was his dad's blanket. His dad had said, here, They've, you know how you always fold the blanket down there for a little extra warmth? He lived in Arizona. And um, he uh, knew, uh, since, since after he grew up, he has a rocking chair in his house, and he threw it over the rocking chair. He'd been there for 20 years. Um, and he knew that his grandpa had picked it up somewhere in Arizona. And so he goes, well, it's just such a plain Indian blanket. It doesn't have any of the ornate designs and angles and stuff that they put on blankets, right? So he took it to uh, the Antique Roadshow, and they came through, and, and an expert came through, and he goes, uh, yeah, this blanket is one of the original ute blankets that was woven for a chief, and it's so early, it was before they put decorative designs on them. And so he, the, he goes, really? He goes, well, what's it worth? He said, over $400,000. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Talk about value in an old blanket for crying out loud. So now here's another group of people that would go around to thrift stores and stuff, and they would pick things up, you know, and they, they focused on jewelry. And they had found a couple pieces that they picked up for, you know, 50 bucks, 100 bucks, and turned out to be worth, you know, 1,000, 5,000, something like that. And this is over in England. And so they found this brooch, right? 
and it has this big green emerald in it and these three diamonds around it. And they said, oh, this is going to be amazing. So they went and they had it appraised. Guess how much that baby's worth? 10 bucks. Because <laughs> it's colored glass, you know? They kind of knew what they were doing. They go, oh, man, this is a gem. Nope, it's just colored glass. They paid like 25 bucks for it. And it's only worth 10. So now here's another guy. This, this guy's interesting. He knew he had something. He had a painting hanging in his house, okay? And this is a painting. And what was interesting about it is he goes, well, I got it from my dad, and this gentleman's older now. Um, he got it from his dad, and he said he got, his dad got it from his grandpa. And he goes, my grandpa's claim to fame is that he was, ran around with Kit Carson in the 1800s. And so he's like, wow, that's, that's really amazing. And so I got this painting. He goes, I don't know if it's worth anything or not, right? And so he went, he goes, I think it might be because on here, down in this small corner down here, is a signature, and the signature is Frederick Remington, the Remington. And so he went, he goes, I think it might be, worth, I don't think it's, I think it's kind of real because my dad ran around with Kit Carson, and Kit Carson ran around with Frederick Remington, right? He actually painted him a little bit. So he took that in, and the guy said, yeah, this is authentic. And he said, you need to insure it. And he goes, he goes well, what do I insure it for? He goes, well... It's, well, it's worth well over $800,000. So I suggest you insure it for about a million bucks. So isn't that interesting how, man, all this stuff that's so old turns out to be so valuable. And that's what we're going to talk about today is we're going to talk about four parables, the mustard seed, leaven, hidden treasure, and costly pearl in Matthew chapter 13. And these parables are all about the value how you assess value, and why the kingdom of God is the most valuable thing you can ever be in or be a part of. So let's start with the mustard seed, okay? And it begins in Matthew chapter 13, where we were studying last week, beginning with verse 31. Now he presented, meaning Jesus presented another parable to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds, but when it is fully grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Now what's interesting is, I am not a uh, farmer. I am not a professional arborist. So I don't know a lot about mustard trees. So I asked a friend to give us a little comment on the mustard tree and mustard seed. Please. Mustard is any one of several plant species in the genera Brassica and Sinapis in the family Brassicaceae, otherwise known as the mustard family. What is unique about mustard is that the seed is very tiny, 1 to 2 millimeters in diameter, yet when fully grown, the tree can be as tall as 20 to 30 feet with branches and leaves spanning across another 20 feet of circumference. The magnificence of the mustard tree is not really in the height but in how wide the branches can span. So 
Isn't that weird? <laughs> that's just weird. So last week I had him read the, the scripture and I was like, that's just too distracting. That's too weird. So I'll read the scripture, you know, maintain the integrity and the honor and the reverence of it. And then we'll have them come in and, and uh, the AI and people are like, why are you doing that? I go, I don't know. It's kind of fun and it's weird and it's, it's kind of cool. Also, it's helping me decide what in the world to do with this squirrel's tail that I'm growing on my chin. Um, you know, there's different you know, options that you will see as the message progresses. The mustard seed is valuable based on one important thing, how much it changes. Now, if you have a quail and a quail has an egg, it's very small. If you have a chicken, they have an egg, it's a little bigger. If you have an ostrich, those things are massive, eggs. Big things come from big things, right? Big things. So what's so strange about the mustard seed is it is small, 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 smaller than anything else, and yet it becomes remarkable in how big it actually grows. And in doing that, it defies what is normal. Your normal expectations are, well, big things grow big things, right? But this super small thing, smaller than anything else, ends up growing the biggest. So this really illustrates that the kingdom of God is like this in that it defies explanation. It starts incredibly small, and then it grows incredibly large. As we talked before in the parable last week, the parable of the weeds, is that we're in the great in-between right now. And you know what that is? Is that is that the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, Satan's kingdom, ex- coexist side by side. The world is the field, and they're both in it. So we're in this great in-between right now where they exist together. You know, the kingdom of God defies its exp- uh, explanation in that it was a small seed planted. How could God becoming one man, the incarnate God, become Jesus and do what? Start something? It The day of Pentecost, when the church started, there was 120 people in the upper room. That's not a lot of folks. And yet today, almost 3 billion adherents to the Christian faith, followers of Christ. That's very small to really, really big. But it's not just the historical thing that has happened about the kingdom of God. Just think about in your own life. Sometimes in your own life, people have come to Christ and it's a very small seed that can be planted, but then it grows into something very large in your life. And what is amazing about the mustard seed is that it's something so small that grows so big. So the mustard seed has many implications, but one of the implications is this, and that is it is a message of hope. Like personally, Maybe you look at your own life and you think, I am not where I need to be. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not going in the direction. I I made so many mistakes. I have so many problems. I've gotten off track. Uh, I didn't know what I wish I would have known when I made those. You know, you have all these things that you're thinking to yourself. Man, I'm never going to be able to get to where I would like to be. Well, the mustard seed, the kingdom of God planted in your heart over time grows into something incredible. Give yourself some time. Maybe your family needs healing. That you're, you're thinking in your family that, wow, I, 
Our family has had so many difficulties, so many mistakes. You know, I mean, how could, how could this thing ever be redeemed and healed and restored? Well, the kingdom of God is a very small seed and it can grow into something incredibly massive. It takes a little time, but it is a message of hope. So the remarkable thing about the mustard seed is that it changes so dramatically, and that's what the kingdom of God does for us when it's planted in our lives. It changes us dramatically. Now let's look at the next one, the parable of leaven, which is also known as yeast, and that's verse 33. So he spoke another parable to them, and he said, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of meal. Yours might th- say three sata, until it was all leavened, okay? So I'm not a baker. I'm not very good at it. I, I have a penchant for smoking. Um, okay, that didn't come out right. Um, <laughs> I have a penchant for taking meat and smoking meat, right? Yeah, okay, just want to make sure I clarify that because things could be misconstrued. Um, so, uh, but baking, I'm, I'm not any good at it. So I asked my friend, Baker Doug, to comment on this. Leaven is an agent added to flour in order to lighten it. The most common leavening agent is yeast. You can put yeast in flour and it not activate until you add water in order to make dough. One interesting thing is that the amount of flour Jesus mentions in huge, almost 60 pounds of flour. Once the leavening agents has been introduced, it is no longer possible to make unleavened bread. Now, one of the things that's important is that when you understand these parables is that you have to ask yourself, if I was living in the first century and Jesus told this, what would I hear and think at the time? And there's two very important things that he says that change the nature of this parable. The first thing he says is there's 60 or there's uh, three pecks or three sada of flour. That's about 60 pounds of flour, okay? That was the standard amount that a Jewish family would set aside to survive the winter, okay? You have to remember, they couldn't go to a store and just buy flour, per se, so they would store it in their home, and you would store it for a period of time from when you plant the seed until you can harvest the seed. That's 120 days, okay? So 60 pounds of flour gives you a half a pound of flour a day, and it can produce up to 100 loaves of bread for the standard family. Loaf, about a loaf a day, not quite a loaf a day. So what's really interesting about that is you would know that is when he says six or, you know, three sada, you'd think, oh, he's talking about the storage of flour that we normally set aside in our household to get us through the three months of winter, right? The 120 days. The other thing is really fascinating is he says she hid it in the flour. So they're hearing, oh, this is our store for the winter. And by hiding leaven in it, you know what she did to the people who are Jewish hearing this? They, oh, she's made it unclean. Well, what does that mean? Well, you have to have a certain portion of flour set aside to celebrate the Passover feast, right? The Passover feast is technically called the feast of unleavened bread. 
So if there's leaven in it, you can't use it for the feast of unleavened bread. And here's the third point. When is the feast of unleavened bread? It's in the middle of April. When does the harvest season for the crop of wheat start? The end of April. So the feast of unleavened bread is when you are what concerning your stores of wheat? You are at the bottom of the barrel, so to speak, right? You're using the last portion to celebrate the Passover. So this is what they're hearing. And they're going, why would you do that? Why would you put the yeast in there, the leaven in there, and then you would ruin it? You'd make it unclean for a religious ceremony that we have to celebrate. That's interesting. And they're probably like the disciples scratching their heads going, wonder what in the world he's talking about? Because they didn't quite get it. Well, there's a lot of implications here, but here's one. And that is when the yeast of the kingdom of God gets into your soul, it ruins all your other religious options. It just ruins them. And we live in a society that has a lot of religious options today. They are all over the place. We have various religions that are organized here in America, but we also have the religion of materialism. We have the religion of sexuality. We have the religion of false identities. We have the religion of, I mean, we have all these different kinds of religions out there today. And what's interesting is whether you're serving yourself or you're trying to serve something else, once the kingdom of God is placed in your life, it ruins all those other options because they are just not enough. They are insufficient. The other thing is, I think an implication here is that leavening does what, okay? Is that you take something that's really heavy and dense, dough, and you, the leaven then does what? The yeast starts to eat, right? And it produces gases and it makes it rise. And so you know what it does? It lightens it. It lightens it up. Back in 2016, we were in Italy and um, I just have a confession to make and that is, is that I don't like Italian breads. They don't put any salt in their bread. That's the first mistake, my opinion. And the second thing is, is the outside is so hard, you know, that you bite into it, man. It's like, you know, you cut your tongue on this stuff. I'm going, man, those Italians are tough, you know. That's how they keep their teeth strong. I don't know. I'm not a fan of Italian bread. So while we were over there, I said, man, I want some good old American bread, you know. I like that bleached white stuff that's so light and fluffy, you know. It has that little golden brown on the top of it. You put that little pat of butter on the top. Not margarine. I mean the real stuff, right? Oh, man, that just makes me hungry just thinking about it right now. And so I said, I'm, you know what I'm going to do is I'm going to make some bread. I'm going to make some real old-fashioned American bread. We're going to rise it up. We're going to bake it. It's going to be awesome. So we were out shopping one day, and my son, my older son, he comes in, and he goes, Dad, I found your flour. Because, of course, when you go shopping there, everything's in Italian. And so it's like, you know, and you can't ask anybody, you know, hey, we're, you know, where's the pasta aisle, you know? Io capisco English? No, no, io capisco. No, they don't speak English. So anyway, he goes, I found the flour, Dad. So he comes over, he drops it on there, and I go, okay. So for the next three months, you know what I did? Almost every day, I tried to make bread. And you know what happened? It never worked. No matter how much yeast I put in that thing, I could not get that dough to rise. And so I made hockey pucks 
all summer long. It, I mean, it was so dense and it was so hard and I'd undercook it, overcook it. I'd throw in extra sugar so the yeast would eat it. I, no matter what I did, I could not get that flour to rise. And after we leave and we're heading back, I read an article in English about the different flowers in Italy. And we bought double O flour, which is pizza dough flour designed never to rise. <laughs> is your life like that? I mean, really, is your life like that? No matter how hard you try, no matter what you do, your life is heavy. And no matter what you try to change, it's heavy. And no matter what difference you think or goals you set or books you read, it's heavy. And your situation around you never seems to improve, it's heavy. Only the kingdom of God has the power to rise and lighten your life and to set you free. That, that's the implication of the parable of the leaven. Let's go to the next one, hidden treasure. This one's pretty good too, okay? This is verse 44, and um, it starts this way. It's only one verse long. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Now, I, I'm, I've never found a hidden treasure or a hidden relic. I don't know what it's like. So I asked archaeologist buddy of mine to tell us what it's like. When you spend your life looking for artifacts and hidden things, you know when you have found the ultimate treasure. The strangest thing is that I wasn't even looking for it. It was completely hidden and no one else knew it was there. I was so excited so I gathered everything I had and got the property. Once I bought that field, I owned the rights to the entire treasure. The greatest find of my career and the best deal I ever made. Best deal I ever made. That guy felt like this was the best deal I ever made. Now, he may not have been a, a well-versed person on treasure, but he's going through this field. He sees this thing. He discovers something nobody else has discovered, right? And he's realizing, boy, this is super valuable. And so he hides it, rehides it, goes, sells everything he has to buy that one field. So unlike the Seymour table that they bought for 25 bucks at a garage sale, this guy was more like the Remington painting. He kind of had an inkling of its value. And so he's willing to trade everything in order to get that. And the kingdom of God is like that. For some people, the kingdom of God with only an inkling about real life or the only inkling about uh, authentic life, maybe the inkling they have is simply this. I have no idea what to do with myself or the road I'm on is not in a good direction. So they have an inkling that they need something more. They need something of value. And then they come across the kingdom of God. And when they do, they, whether they, they stumble across it or they hear about it for the first time, they realize this is what I need. And so they're willing to trade everything for it. Jesus had a really interesting statement. He, he used to say, look, following me, you just have to choose to follow. But he also said this, he goes, if you want to follow after me and be, be my disciple, you have to deny yourself. 
And really, in essence, that's, that's an amazing thing to think. I have to deny. I have to sell everything else that I have. Everything else that I put my hope and faith in in this world, or including myself, I have to get rid of it in order to do what? Have this treasure called the kingdom of God. There's no comparison to it. What's really interesting, too, about this parable, I think one of the implications is that there are those people who understand its value, and they strongly fight against it. They, they'll do everything they can to stop the kingdom of God. I, I just read uh, recently uh, about uh, some universities that are training people, and in it, they are now comparing Christians to Nazis. I'm like, oh, oh, that can't be true. That's fake news. So I look into it, and I dig into it, and I go, it's absolutely true. And, and so what's fascinating is that there are people who understand the value of the kingdom of God and say so they'll do everything they can to fight against it. That's why being a follower of Christ is it's so important to be salt and light in this world, right? Because we are the influence out there. Now let's keep going because uh, I want to talk about the costly pearl and that starts in verse 45 and verses 46 and listen to what he says. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and he bought it. Well, if you're wondering, I am not an expert in costly pearls. However, this guy is. As a seeker of fine pearls, you come to know and understand the market. You are always looking for that perfect pearl. Then one day you find what you have been seeking for your entire life. It is an amazing thing to be able to give up something of lesser value for the greatest value of all. There's no comparison, would do it again in a second. <laughs> so if, uh, on a side note, if you want to register your vote of which of those would look best for the beard, please just submit that to, you know, uh, Detroit at gmail.com. Um, the remarkable thing about this parable, I think, it sticks out to me, is that the merchant already knew what he was looking for. See, he already knew. He, he was in the business. And so what What's remarkable to me about that is he had a level of expertise that he could say, this, this one pearl is worth more than all the other pearls and gems that I have. And so I've sold them all to get this one pearl. So, so what are the implications of this simple little parable for us today. Well, I think there's a couple. Number one is we live in a society of equivocation. Equivocation is this notion that all beliefs, all cultures, all faiths, all ideas are equally valid. It's our society's attempt to say anything is equal in its validity to something else. The problem with that is in some cultures, it says, love your neighbor. And in other cultures, it says, eat your neighbor. So all cultures are not the same. In some cultures, it says, you respect private property. You don't steal another person's property. In other cultures in the world today, you're taught to do it, to show power and authority over your neighbor. So... 
all cultures are not the same. All values are not the same. And part of growing up is learning how to discern the difference, right? Maturing is part of the process of learning that. Our, I believe, society today is attempting to confuse people so much that they know they have no understanding of the value of things when they see them. G.K. Chesterton talked about this in his book, Orthodoxy. What he talked about is this. He said, okay, you have a group of people that go out and they buy this field, and this field is highly productive, green, and lush. So they go and they buy this field, and then the first thing they do is when they get in the field is they go, oh, look at this old stone building. We don't like it. So they dig it up, and they, they uh, demolish it and haul it off not knowing that that building housed the irrigation control valves that irrigated the field that made the field so lush and productive. And he says, that's what the modern generations in Western civilization are doing today, is they are taking stuff that they see, oh, look at this lush field. We want to walk in it, live in it, but we're going to destroy the ancient wisdom, traditions, and infrastructure that produced that productivity and that affluence. Simply because it's old, we're going to throw it away. Could you imagine being the gal that was at the garage sale and said, I went from 30 bucks to 25 bucks on that Seymour table. I should have held my guns. Oh, she's, she's probably thinking, oh my goodness, if I would have just taken five minutes and had it appraised, I'd have over a half a million dollars in my bank account. In our society today, when it comes to principles and values and all these old things, we have the, uh, all these important things that have built our society around us. Guess what? We have, we're throwing them away for no other reason than they're old. Well, my parents and my grandparents and my great-grandparents and my great-great-great-grandparents and my great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparents all believe this stuff, but they're all old and dead anyway. G.K. Chesterton called this the prejudice or bigotry of the living, that we would look back and hold the ancient wisdom in such contempt. You know, the, the, the parable of the costly pearl is that once we lose... Once we lose the ultimate values of the kingdom of God, we end up losing everything, not just our faith, but in our lives as well, in the society in which we live. This is why the, the kingdom of God is so valuable, and the, the costly pearl says the merchant knew exactly what he was looking for. So the question is, do you know exactly what you're looking for? Why is the kingdom of God so valuable to you and why you should seek it with all of your heart? One of my favorite stories is the story of Louis Zamperini. Louis Zamperini, born just uh, after 1900, was an Olympic distance runner, and he went to the Berlin Olympics in 1936, and he set a track record in the 8,000-meter run. Okay? And so he was like a hero. He's well recognized. And so right after that, he signed up for the, uh, the war effort and he was deployed to the South Pacific. And in the South Pacific, he flew the liberators. And what they did is they did search and rescue. 
You know, they'd go in, they'd find um, boats that had been, you know, and picked up sailors. They would find down planes and things of that nature. Well, their plane ran into some mechanical difficulties, and so they had to ditch it in the ocean. And he and a couple guys that survived floated on this raft for a few weeks until they drifted into the Marshall Islands, which were under Japanese control. And once there, they were taken as prisoners. And history says that the Japanese treated our soldiers in the most inhumane and brutal ways that you could imagine. And it had to do with their religious worship of their emperor. And so he was brutally tortured. And then when they found out that he was a hero in the Olympics, they sent him to a special camp to torture him even more. And there was this one Japanese sergeant that just tortured him endlessly. They called him the bird and his name was Wanatabi. And he just made his life so painfully difficult. The bird tortured him in ways you can't even imagine. Once the war ended, he came home and he was bitter and angry. He started drinking, became a hardcore alcoholic. He had PTSD that was so bad he couldn't even function. One evening, he was stumbling down a street and he heard music and he stumbled into a camp meeting where the evangelist was standing there on an old wooden box with benches laid out in the grass and a holy old tent, you know, with holes in it. And he heard for the first time the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of the kingdom of God. And when he said, offered the invitation and said, it's time for you to come into the kingdom of God, Louis stood up and he went forward. And it was in that moment where he met Christ and he was brought from death to life. After that, he dedicated his life to being a Christian evangelist. And what's amazing is books have been written about him. Three movies have been made about him uh, just in the last 10, 15 years about his life. But he was dedicated to preaching the gospel of Christ. And you know what his number one issue was that he focused on in all of his preaching about the kingdom of God? It was all about forgiveness. And it was all focused on how he found freedom when he was able to forgive the bird, Wanatabi, that tortured him. What's really fascinating is Wanatabi was declared a war criminal, but they couldn't find him. The Japanese people hid him. And he was found when he was 81 years old, two years before he died. And they went and they interviewed him about it. And they said he was the most bitter man they had ever met, even for Japanese, but he's super bitter and angry. And when they confronted him with his torture, he says, I have nothing to apologize. I did nothing wrong. And yet his entire life was filled with bitter and anger, hatred and resentment. But the man he tortured became an evangelist for the kingdom of God that preached the gospel, set people free by preaching the truth of forgiveness. What a comparison. See, the kingdom of God is so valuable, nothing compares to its value. Seek it with all of your heart. Let's stand for closing prayer. Jesus, we just want to thank you.
uh, for what you have done and to invite us to be in your kingdom. We pray, God, a blessing on all those who've been lost in the sacrifice of service of a great cause and their descendants and family members, God. On this day, we remember many people who paid the ultimate sacrifice on Memorial Day in order, God, for, to protect the cause of liberty and freedom, which is just a small foreshadowing of the liberty and freedom that we experience in your kingdom. Let that be our highest aspiration. Amen. God bless you and see you next Sunday. <laughs>